In Genesis chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 and 2. Let us stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. If you looked at the title of the sermon, you might be a little bit bemused by its uh, statement, especially if you know anything about the London Underground. In the London Underground, the subway that runs below London, you will see signs with this message printed uh, very frequently. Mind the gap. The gap they are talking about is the gap between the station walkway and the train itself. They put these signs up so that the unwary do not trip and fall over the distance and the difference in height. Uh, that an er- an, uh, that unevenness can trip up the unwary and cause damage. And in some similar ways, uh, there is warning for the unwary about uh, some of the theories about the days of creation. So in the days of creation, minding the gap is not the gap that separates the platform from the subway, but uh, the gap, so-called gap theory, uh, that posits a distinction, a a gap of time, especially between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And this theory grew out of an attempt uh, to reconcile scientific discoveries with the text of Scripture. Uh, I do not, I'm not a big fan of the gap theory, as you may well know. I am a, I am a, a stark traditionalist. Six 24-hour days seems to be okay with me. Uh, and yet, if, as we think about what is being revealed to us, there is some advantage of thinking about the gap or the distinction uh, from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 1-2. There is a, uh, a focusing in from the heights of Genesis 1-1, where all of creation, the entire created order, the universe of known things, both things in heaven and things on earth, physical and spiritual, all come from the created power of God. Now the focus is going to be upon the earth, the habitation that God forms for man. And there are a number of things in verse 2 of Genesis 1 that are programmatic for the rest of the first chapter of Genesis. Here we see all of the problems that God is going to rectify uh, through the days of creation. This verse also has implications concerning how we understand part of the book of Job, which we are going to be studying at the end of this week. We cannot miss how God's work of creation plays an important role in his message to Job. God is seen in the first two chapters of Job as the monarch ruling over all of his creation. Satan is seen as the guy who is running to and fro and up and down upon the face of the earth. And yet God is still in control in Job as he begins his lament Uh, laments the day in which he was born and calls upon darkness to descend upon him. There are Genesis imagery from uh, the very first of Job even to the end where the Lord speaks to Job in Genesis language. In fact, uh, I read one book, and I'm not going to spoil it for you. I'm trying hard not to spoil the Job seminar for you guys. Uh, but it talks about some of the, the two main figures in the second speech of the Lord uh, to Job. 
and has some very interesting things to say about them and the way in which they respond uh, from Genesis 1-2. Today, I want us to see how Genesis 1-2 fits within, within the rest of the chapter and sets up a framework, if you will, for understanding the days of creation. And I want us to see here the framework theory, the fearful asymmetry, and the fixing activity. The framework theory, uh, the fearful asymmetry, and the fixing activity. And another example of my faltering attempts to have a bunch of wordplay at the beginning of my sermons, uh, the framework theory here uh, refers to another way of looking at the days of creation. It is one that is accepted within the OPC and is probably uh, the major contender, the major alternative to uh, the traditional uh, view. This view emphasizes the literary form of the first chapter. Uh, there are so many literary, literary frameworks that are here uh, that are worthy of understanding, but chief among them is the distinction between the first three uh, days of creation and the last three days of creation. The first three days of creation forming or dividing or creating kingdoms and the last three days of creation filling uh, those forms or uh, dominions. And the idea for this actually has its basis right here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The Hebrew uses the words tohu vabohu, and I just like saying that because it rhymes, it sounds cool to say, and so you can take that and use that in your, your daily life. In English, we read of it as formless and void, uh, formless and empty. The euphonia that adds to the literary impact of the first chapter, the words signal what the two parts of the six days of creation uh, will accomplish. In fact, the days of creation will solve the problems in the world that show up here in verse 2. And the first is uh, without form, formless. There are no categories for creation. It is, in a sense, uh, this big jumbled mess. It is confused, and days one through three go through the, uh, the ordering of these things. The key word here, if you look at, verse, uh, at days one through three, is the word divided. The Lord divided between light and dark. He divided between sky and sea. He divided between land and sea. He is ordering things. He is separating things. He is dividing things. He is taking what is formless and forming it into things that man can live in. The second term means void or empty. Not only is the world in a mess, but it also is empty of all important items. And days four through six involve God's filling the categories that he creates in days one through three. In day one, he, create, he divides between light and darkness. In day four, he puts uh, the moon, he's put the sun for the day, and he puts uh, the stars and the moon in the night. In day two, he, creates the, he divides between uh, sky and sea. And in day five, he puts birds in the air and he puts fish in the sea. In day three, he separates between sea and dry land. And on day six, he creates land animals. He is forming in the first three days. He is filling in the last three days. Some see the literary form as being the most important and uh, conclude that it's a historical, the first chapter of Genesis, but I think that that is rather isolated. The stories of the days of creation reveals that God takes that which is formless and empty and forms it and fills it. 
In a sense, God at the beginning is redeeming formless and empty matter as he redeems formless and empty lives. We hear formless and empty. We hear confused and void, and we cannot help but to draw some psychological uh, understanding from them. We think subjectively about our own experience as being confused, as being empty. And this is not wholly wrong. We often do feel these ways, but sinful man's problem is far more worse. Remember, there's a sense in which Genesis 1-2 is not demonstrating a sinful problem. There's nothing wrong with a formless and empty world. The problem is that that's not going to be the world that man can live in. And so the entirety of chapter 1 of Genesis is saying this is the way the world was and God made it for man, that the acme of his creative power on the sixth of the day. So sinful man's problem is even worse. It's a confu- his confusion is not a confused world. It is a confusion about reality. His problem is not the emptiness of absence, but the emptiness of a vacuum. But as Christians, we also live in a state with confusion and emptiness uh, redolent of that first estate. You see, that first estate is not evil, but immature. It shows the need of God's intervention. It shows the need of God to do something more for man and him to live in paradise. What a better example of our current state as his people. We suffer the reality of confusion of living between the already and the not yet, the confusion of living as God's people in a broken world. We are made for heaven. We have been redeemed for heaven. And yet we live with the confusion of having to live in a world in which sin is still present. We endure the emptiness of life outside heaven, of life outside of paradise, of the not yet being fulfilled with God as we truly desire to be. And as the solution for that first day of creation, so the solution is for us. We cannot form ourselves, we cannot fill ourselves, and nothing within creation can do the forming or filling for us. Only the Lord God Almighty, by His almighty word, is able to bring order to confusion and to fill our hearts' emptiness. You see the framework, but secondly, I want us to see the fearful asymmetry I've just put all sorts of allusions at the beginning this morning, and this one comes uh, from the poem by William Blake, the tiger, 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 burning bright in the darkness of the night, who can stand thy fearful symmetry? In that poem, Blake poses the question of a creator who creates both a violent tiger and a gentle lamb as if these two extremes reflect some kind of inner turmoil in the nature of God. But that is not, not the conflict that appears within creation. We understand that the violence of the tiger that Blake comments upon comes from sin, and yet the Bible posits for us a creator who is powerful but good. This appears in verse 2 as God prepares to reconcile both the darkness and the depths. Look at verse 2 again. 
And this and uh, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. You have three categories in this first verse. You have formless and void, you have darkness and depths, and you have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Second, the second duality is the darkness and the depths, and it's not really a duality. It's two things that are being brought up to our attention as problems for man's habitation of earth. Now, you might have thought about darkness in terms as moral impurity, that this darkness somehow uh, reflects a primordial sin, but that's not how uh, the author of Genesis is using it. God is still Lord of the darkness. The psalmist will say, if I go in the darkness, the darkness is as light unto you. Where can I hide from your presence? And so the purpose of the darkness is not here to represent a pre-existing evil, but to represent the other aspect of darkness, and that is, for us, it is the place of fear. In fact, both of these objects, as we will look at, are the place of fear. Darkness represents fear in the Bible. You can look at Genesis 15, 12, Exodus 20, 21, Deuteronomy 4, 11, and 5, 22 through 23. Why is it a fearful place? It is the place where we cannot see the dangers that surround us. We might not be afraid of the dark, as uh, little children may be, where we have to have a nightlight on in order for us to sleep. But if you were to say, let's go and run around in the dark, unless you're getting up to some no good, something no good, most of us prefer not to do that. If we want to run around in the woods, you don't necessarily want to do that without a flashlight or some form of illumination because you cannot see the dangers that surround you. And this uh, point, at this point in the message, this is a warning. This is not where people that God wants to fellowship with can live. It's not fit for human habitation that mankind, as God intends to make him, cannot function in the dark. And God must deal with that for man to exist. While we can function in the dark, to be sure, we cannot function exclusively in the dark. The second part of the phrase uses another special word, the depth, the home. This one is going to come up rather frequently in Job. If you want to go ahead and start reading Job in preparation, go ahead and do that, and you will find out that the depths show up quite a bit. This refers to the depths of the sea. To understand this phrase, we must go to Revelation 21.1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have, were passed away, and there was no more sea. Believe it or not, I did a whole series of sermons on this one passage to get to the point where we could understand what it meant that there was no more sea. Does that mean that in the new heavens and the new earth, there's not going to be an ocean? Well, you've got to understand what the sea meant what the depths meant. It wasn't just uh, the sea as we think about it. It was the place of terror. It was the place of death. For primitive people living in an arid landscape, the sea was a source of terror. They didn't have GPSs and ocean liners. They didn't have uh, the ability that we do to cross the sea without fear, largely. Every boat faced uh, the perfect storm, a, a storm capable of sinking it faster than you can imagine. You think about the disciples in the boat as they are uh, there trying to cross the Sea of Galilee. 
and a storm comes up and they are worried that they are going to sink as well. Beyond the storms that could come up, there within the depths lived the sea creatures. We read the book of Jonah and we're kind of bemused by the whole thing of a whale coming up and swallowing uh, the Lord's prophet who's rather rebellious. I don't think we get the terror of that event that it must have held for those who read it the first time. That here's a man that was swallowed by a creature of the sea. The seas represented the unknown and the uncontrollable, like the darkness in which hid dangers that couldn't be seen. The sea might appear calm on the surface, but in a moment it could turn into a raging inferno. It might look like it is uninhabited, but beneath lie all sorts of sea creatures, not all of which are friendly to mankind. So why the darkness? Why the depths? Because God, by his almighty power, establishes the world so that it is suitable for habitation. He is going to control that which is uncontrollable to man. You can take a flashlight out into the woods, but you cannot make the night like the day. You can build a ship to go upon the waters, but anyone who has seen uh, the various hurricanes or watch the movie The Perfect Storm know that there are things that to call, or have seen the movie Titanic or know the history of the Titanic is that to call anything unseekable on the sea is the height of hubris. God alone by his power is able to control the uncontrollable, to bring light to the dark, to make that which is fearful known. We all also live with the reality of fear. The fear of the unknown does not belong solely to the unbeliever. It operates as part of our makeup as those who are called to Christ and living in a broken world. We still don't know what lurks in the darkness. We still fear the monsters in the depths. It is to these sea monsters that the Lord pointed and used in his conversation with Job. When he talks about the Leviathan playing in the sea that only he can tame, he is referring obliquely to this very part where the depths are there, which he is going to control and constrain. Job will call for darkness to cover the days of his, verse, of his birth, but the Lord reminds him of what lurks in the dark that only he knows. We need the same trust in the powerful God who tames the depths before making the Leviathan. For the fearful symmetry of the tiger comes with a divine chain. A word created all things. A word created Leviathan and the tiger. And that same power can tame them. A word created the Sea of Galilee and our Savior with the word tamed it. What then have we to fear from man or beast or circumstance? What have we to fear from all of these things if the Lord who loved us revealed in the created work is still for his people? We see the framework theory. We see the fearful symmetry. And finally, the fixing activity. 
God reveals himself in preparing for this activity of fixing the creation and preparing it for his people. And this is seen as God's Spirit hovering over the water. The phrase, the Spirit of God, there at the end of verse 2, the Spirit of God moved or hovered upon the face of the water. The Spirit of God translates the words that could be interpreted the breath of God or the mighty wind, but this idea of the Spirit of God is to be preferred since the others simply restate principles mentioned before, the danger of the world. Instead, uh, this verb, as we see, uh, seems more agreeable to a personal subject. It might be a little early in Genesis to be developing a Trinitarian view of the first chapter of Genesis, but we, knowing and looking at it through New Testament eyes, cannot help but see the Holy Spirit of God hovering over the waters. At this point, God is taking an active part in the creation of the world. That God is not in some way distant from the world, acting upon it in some way uh, from outside, if we can even think about it, outside as a part of God. But here, God is revealed as being present in his world, already active to do what he needs to do to create God reveals to Moses the activity of God's Spirit in the, this verb, hovering. It is a verb used by the, of the flight of birds. It appears in Deuteronomy 32.11, As an eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them, and beareth them on her wings. The eagle is hovering over her young. The action refers to the presence of God at the act of creation and his care of it. As a bird hovers over her young, caring for them, so God flutters over his creation, caring for it as well. God is not impartial about his creation any more than he is dispassionate about his people. Paul reminds us of this in Romans chapter 8, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, by, by the reason of him that subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth and paineth together until now, and not only they, but also ourselves, which are the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we groan within ourselves, awaiting the adoption to it, the redemption of the body. There's an interesting passage in the book of Job where, where the Lord talks about rain that falls in a place where there is no man. The reason that God talks about that is because he wants to demonstrate that he cares for his creation, even in places where no person is. And here, at the beginning of the created order, God, through Moses, is revealing his care of his creation and his direct involvement within it. Paul discloses the comparison between redeemed people awaiting the consummation and the creations awaiting that same thing. But only those who receive the message of the gospel participate in this restoration of creation. And this is the message that we proclaim as God's people, that God made the world good and man, our first parents, Adam and Eve, broke it through their sin. And as Adam fell, we all fall in him. We share his culpability and the culpability of our own evil ways. 
and we rightly deserve God's condemnation. But the God who organized a dangerous universe to be a place of peace for fallen humanity also redeems fallen humanity. In Christ, God accomplishes the restoration of that good creation that man through sin spoiled. For Jesus is God made man who came to earth to redeem his people, not separate, but as the spirit hovering over the waters, Jesus entered into creation. He lived a holy life for his people. He died upon the cross, the death that they deserved. He rose from the dead, demonstrating his triumph over sin and death. In that resurrection, he demonstrates the power of creation again. To bring new life to his people. For you either participate in that soiled creation, or you participate in the work of Christ for you, redeeming all things under Jesus. And which will you choose? Will you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Will you turn from your sin and follow Christ? The gospel is not a new thing. It is part and parcel of what God is and has done from the very first words of the Bible. That we may be formless and empty and unusable and dangerous to ourselves and others and unstable, but God, who is not constrained, is able to recreate and redeem us as people. His great power is displayed at the beginning of creation, and it is the same power that redeems fallen humanity from all its spoiled horror. But God does not conduct this sanctifying work from afar. He gets into our lives. The same spirit that hovered over the waters at creation hovers still over his people and more indwells them and engages them. The work of recreation, of sanctification, is not yet completed in his people. Often we may say with Job, perhaps in a little different format, that we prefer if the Lord would leave us alone, that change and sanctification are too painful for us. Job is often a little, I think the commentaries call him ironic, I call him a little inconsistent. He says, God, leave me alone and answer me. Oftentimes we are, feel the same way. We want God to leave us alone because the process of being more like Jesus is often too painful for us. Change is often not an easy thing. But praise his name that that is one thing that our God never does. He never leaves his people alone. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Hebrews 13.5 quotes from Joshua chapter 1. Our God is ever near correcting, comforting, loving, and sanctifying. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, when we are at our ends, remind us that you are the great creator who not only has created all things in a kind of doctrinal and theological way that satisfies our understanding of the world, but in ways that demonstrate your love and care for your people. When we feel confused and empty, you are there to bring order and to fill. When we 
live in the fear of the unknown. You come and remind us of your power, your knowledge, and your care. When we feel apart, you, O Lord, are hovering over us to remind us of your special providence. Remind us of your presence and strengthen us this day, we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.